During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Hi, it's Wednesday. Running the nose, and we're in the middle of the coronavirus uh, tukufa. One day people will be doing, hopefully one day we'll be doing history reports about this period, and when uh, all the shoals close, my shoal, the whole, I'm speaking from Baltimore, all the synagogues, I'm the Vader We took a decision yesterday, no no minions, not only no shoals, no minions. It's uh, really rough, this health uh, health crisis series, as we all know. Uh, so in the midst of that, we're all grounded, and I have to learn how to do Zoom for my college teachings. And uh, by next week, um, maybe something good will come out of Zoom, I'm not sure, I'll, I'll let you know. I'm going to try tomorrow night to do a class in Medish Rabba in the Zoom, the one I do with my son. Uh, how so we'll see how that uh, works uh, but meanwhile I just, before I start I just want to give a shout out to somebody I, uh, who made contact with the other day I haven't seen him in many many years Alex Fuchsman Alex Fuchsman who lives in um, Elizabeth it turns out a uh, student of mine a friend of mine from many years ago and uh, I greet him very warmly today we're going to uh, be talking about Dara HaSholchan that sort of turned out the one that uh, hit me this week although maybe I took on too big of a burden some of these people you talk about, you can definitely do like in a half hour, 45 minutes. At least, you know, the basics. Some of the bigger subjects are, are I thought a few days beginning of the week, I said, I can do him because, you know, it's not that long. But then the more I thought about it, and then uh, maybe I have too much time in my hands because now, as I said, we're all grounded. The shoals aren't open. You can't go to the house, at least in Baltimore. And uh, wherever you are, you shouldn't go to the house either. You know that, uh, the self-quarantining as they call it. Anyway, it's a big topic, maybe it's too big, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. Uh, so today's uh, uh, talk, podcast, will be, is uh, being sponsored in memory uh, by Jay Myers, in memory of his father, who's, who's the art artist today. This is Mr. Stanford Myers from Philly, or Shalom Ben Yitzchak, and uh, I'm, I'm particularly happy to do this because he can't say cottage, you understand? The son, can't, the whole country, we have people, is a bad mazel that you can't say cottage. Well, on the other hand... If the din is that you don't say Kaddish, then that's the way you honor the parents. You understand what I'm saying? Don't feel, don't have a guilt trip. If in your town, the Rabbanim or the Postkin, wherever it is, say, then this is the time when the shul is shut down, has to be done halachic reasons, then don't be an extra tzaddik and figure a way to make a secret minion because you're not doing the Nesham any good. Uh, there are times when you makablin Allah, appreciate the same makablin Allah, Enough for the sermons. So today's for that. Uh, I was also... Approached by Dr. Scharf. His mom is having yards at the end of the week, so I hope to do the next podcast, which will be tomorrow, Friday, I hope, on the partial. We've got a double partial this week. In her memory, I'll talk about that later. So, uh, anyway, it's uh, Ace Tarlianko that we're in right now. Now, uh, without any further ado, I'm going to try to give the, uh, what should I say, you know, at least the historical context. That's all I can do in these things, because every one of these people, or most of them anyway, or whole books, you know that, and I'm not exaggerating, the famous people we're talking about. But Darach HaShulchan, very interesting. For those who know what I'm talking about, and some people get mixed up with the Shulchan Aruch and Darach HaShulchan, uh, although I think most of the people listening to these podcasts are not that tight, we're talking about uh, a rabbi who lived in Russia, or Belarus to be exact. Uh, he was a Litvish guy, but he did not live in Lithuania. 
I'm going to be very clear. There are two countries uh, that exist today. I've been in both. One's called the Republic of Lithuania. That's one. And the other one's called the Republic of Belarus. That's the other one. And historically, these used to be kind of joined together in various ways. And uh, I'll tell you the difference. I'm sure I must have mentioned some earlier times. Because Darach Shulchan is a classic Belarusian uh, Misnagda Sharov. Uh, <coughs> Lithuania is a place where most of the people did not go Hasidic. Poland is a place where most of the people did go Hasidic. Belarus is a place where it's 50-50, which is just interesting. It's 50-50 for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't want to give a whole historical disquisition. Since we all have so much time on our hands, maybe sometime I'll give a historical disquisition. But I want to concentrate today on the Yerach HaShulchan. Suffice it to say that in the 1800s, which we're talking about, this entire area was, was under part of Tsarist Russia. The Russians had conquered and annexed the whole business. Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, Ukraine, the whole business. But still, the distinct dis- distinctions are interesting. And speaking very broadly, because that's all you can do in a podcast, I would say that whereas Lithuania was a small Hasidic presence, by contrast, Belarus was the headquarters of Lubavitch, plus others. I think the main one would be Lubavitch over the Hasidic movements, but there were others, as we'll see. And uh, therefore, you had very interesting situations, which you really did not have so much in Lithuania, in which you had Kahilis. It's very just very interesting, and I'm talking about the 1800s, in which you could have like two large Kahilis side by side, one Hasidic, let's say one Chabad and one Misnagdim, in the same town. Sometimes they would have, as we shall see, sometimes they would have one Rav or one Bezdin, sometimes they would have two. Sometimes they got along better, sometimes they got along worse. One big th- this is after the period of Vilna Gaon and the fights were over. You know, I'm not talking about like late 1700s, early 1800s. The Archa Shulchan lived from 1829, almost 80 years, to 1909, 1908. So he lived all through the 1800s. Again, from to use round numbers from like 1830 to close to 1910, you know, in those years. Now, uh, that means all through 19th century Tsarist Russia. Uh, by this time, the government was so doggone anti-Semitic that the Hasidim and the Snagim had to kind of, you know, bury their hatchet and not in each other uh, because they had to unite many times against the common enemy, which was the Tsar Russia. This is how it went. It's sad that things had to hit that level, but I'm not going to give a, a, a syrup speech. Just the way it was. Now, uh, both the, and, and the Chabad plays a big part in his life, even though he wasn't in the Chabad. Now, the Archa Shulchan is just very interesting, because he became, as I, I think many of you noticed him before I say it, he was a big rub in, in Russia. In, in a very interesting contrast, uh, uh, I would love to do a speech sometimes, but it would have to be a formal talk, compare and contrast. Sometimes you compare and contrast people. So, uh, as I'll probably end up doing before I'm talking, finish talking, a lot of people have written to compare and contrast, for example, the Archa Shulchan and the Mishnah Bura. That's a very well-known theme. But from my perspective, just sitting here in my office, uh, which is what I do when I give these talks or in the car, uh, you could do a very interesting contrast, compare and contrast, uh, the Archa Shulchan and Yitzhak Ochan Inspector. You know, one became the Rav here, and one of them became the Rav here. Matter of fact, both of them, as we'll see, were in Rabbis in Navardic. Uh, different periods, of course. And... Uh, a lot of similarities, a lot of distinct differences. It is very interesting. Now, one difference would be that Yitzhak Lachan Spector, who I spoke about long, long ago, came from a poor family of Hasidic background. The Archa Shulchan, Yechil Michal Epstein, Halevi, came from a rich family of not Hasidic, but Misnagdic background, uh, which is interesting. 
And you could divide the life of Der HaShulchan, Michal Epstein, into three broad periods, A, B, and C. And that's what I try to do in these talks, give you a little bit of a historical perspective. Uh, and they all were in White Russia, in Belarus. And uh, see, he's, he's from Bobroisk. We used to have in Tehra, Rabbi Bobroisk, which was one of these very, very interesting situations in, in Belarus. When the Russian army took over, I mean, the Russians conquered and annexed this area in the 1700s. When it became firmly under the Tsarist regime, so um, that means the Russian army set up bases and fortresses and stuff like that everywhere. Or not everywhere, in certain places. That's where the Jews went. <laughs> Get it? It was an army base. It was a garrison. I'm telling you the way it went. Then that's where your enterprising Jew goes because that's where you can get a contract. You could do the lumber for the army, horses, food, fodder, munitions, all kinds of stuff. Later, the railroads. This is this was like, you know, you'd say t- today, hey, get government contracts. All right, how do you, so how do from Jews prosper? You hear about uh, from Jews who prospered in the Tsarist period. Some. Where does that come from? Most of the time, it's through these army bases. So Babroisk was a famous army base, and therefore there was a small Jewish community at the time. He was born, but it built up and up and up. So it went from like a few hundred to 20,000 eventually, and uh, it's all from that economy. So that means that, as is often the case, like Kovna is the same way, Satmar is the same way, people just don't know this. These are Kahilas and communities that really came into formation in the 19th century. They didn't really exist prior to the 1800s. Sometimes they literally didn't exist, and sometimes they existed in very tiny numbers. But the Kehillah that they actually really became like a ear of Ambi Yisrael and Babroisk was, that happened in the 1800s because of the economy. So something like if America, people would all move to some uh, new location because of like a, uh, a big economy there or something like that. This country have a lot of places like that, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, to give you an example, once upon a time Jews moved when they came to this country, all these small towns in the south and west. And then they left because that's not where the economic action was. So they moved to bigger cities. So here's somebody, Hugh McLepstein, who was born in 1829, so early in the 19th century, relatively, to a rich family, Misnagdim, Tamidi Chachamim. Epstein is like one of the elite families. And, uh, you know, but he's living in a funny town. It's a town which is 50-50. In fact, it's even, yeah, it's 50-50. It's half Chabad and half not, half Misnagdim. And uh, the Rav, just very interesting guy, was Lubavitcher when he was young, was Chabad, uh, Ettinger. Uh, I know these names don't mean anything to you. There were these very interesting characters in the late 1700s, early 1800s. There was a number of them that they were friends with the Vilnagon, and they're also friends with the Balatanya. Right? Isn't, isn't that interesting? Even though the two protagonists necessarily get along, or at least the Vilnagon certainly didn't get along with the Balatanya, but uh, there were types. Menashe Ilya is one of them. Yeshua Zeitlin is one of them. Uh, and there are, there are a number of them. And uh, I think his name was Rabarch Mordechai Ettinger. Uh, he was a rub there, and he so basically he was a huge Talmud Chacham, and he was also a Lubavitch Chassid, Chabad Chassid, and uh, of the whole town. So that's just interesting. The Misnagdim at that time wasn't a large town at that time. Didn't mind having somebody who was a Chabad Chassid. You don't see that too often today in the Misnagdish world. Now, on the other hand, you could be in Baltimore. You had it once. I don't know how great it worked, but you had it. Uh, but we're going to see that sometimes you had something which you definitely don't have today. It's inconceivable. A Chabad community that has a Misnagdish rope. That's very, very unusual. I don't think it exists. I mean, now. Uh, Siddhartha Shulchan lived over there. 
when he, uh, see, he grew up, you know, you know the type. He was an Eloy, a very genius. He was. And at a young age, and remember, he's from an elite family. Uh, so, uh, I forget, his father learned with him. Mainly, the main person I think they see learn him was the Rav, and then the guy who became the Rav after him, which is somebody you never heard of before. But it was a big deal once upon a time, Rebellio Goldberg. Uh, like I say, I'm well aware that these names don't mean anything to most people. But, uh, you know, they were big names back in the old country, uh, once upon a time. And uh, uh, so he, he saw him at a young age, and he said, this boy has, uh, you know, real potential to be a guttle, which was nothing but the truth. And uh, he really uh, learned with him. And let's put it this way. That means the guy he learned with mainly, this young boy, the guy he learned with mainly was uh, a rov, not a Rosh Hashiva. What do I mean by that? A rov in the old sense of the word. You paskin shalos, you sit on basin every day. So that means the type of learning that you're going to do with a rov is very different than if you went to a yeshiva and heard a shir in Gemara from a famous Magad shir, uh, to use Baltimore language, or Kalevsky or somebody like that, uh, you know, or Shmuel Brudny and, and Mir, people of that type, or Nachum Bartzavich, in which you're learning, it's the Lumdus, which is the Iker. You understand? Here, if you're learning through Shas and Poskin with a rov, with an Abbasin, uh, it's a different type of learning. It's Halacha Lamaisa. It's Asuka Shmaisa Libid You go through the Sugi, you go through the Shunim, then you follow through the Rambam, and through the Tor, and through the Shulchan Aruch, and the Sakalim, like that, right? And if you do it that way, then certain Svaras, which might seem to you that they make sense or don't make sense, you find out that's the ones that uh, emerged as the Halachic Svaras. So uh, maybe you yourself might think that this doesn't make sense, but by the time you finish going through all those sources, you say, well, this is the way it goes, right? And you adjust your thinking along those lines, and they become halachist. You get it? You become halachist. Now, um, after learning with uh, this, uh, the local Rav, so they said, like, they say, well, you, we're going to send you to Yeshiva. Uh, you know, uh, Velazhin. This is the time of Ritzel of Velazhin. So the Archa Shulchan uh, was a Talmud of Velazhin. Not really. He's only here for two years. And I remember I have a book at home, very obscure book, where Shmuel Bedoro, I think it's called. Uh, the guy who knew the Archa Shulchan, he said, because he asked him, what do you remember from your years in Velazhin? And I remember he said two things. He said, number one, <laughs> uh, Rabitzel Belajan, who I did a podcast on some time ago, he was a shall, what, what shall we say, a very uh, down to earth person. So the boys want to stay up learning and uh, and light the candle. He said, as soon as it gets sundown, hit the hit the bed. You know, just just learn all day. But when it comes night, go to sleep. And number two, he when he was young in the yeshiva, he said he wanted to bring his bed into the uh, Ezra's Nashim and sleep in the basement, it's like the old pious style. And the Rosh yeshiva said, "Get out of here. We're not doing none of that." You sleep in the dorm room, and you sleep a full night, and you wake up, and you come here, and you dress like a mensch. There's no eating and sleeping in here. This is for learning, and, you know, conduct yourself accordingly. Uh, now, he's only here for two years. However, uh, he obviously was a, a, a good learner, and coming from a rich family, so, I don't know, the age of 15, 16, I don't know how old he is, he got married to a shidduch, to a girl of the same uh, economic class, this is the sister of Nitziv, okay, Berlin. So, notice he married an elite family also. What do they both have in common? They're uh, very rich, both sides, and uh, they have a big tradition of being Talmud HaChachamim. See, I'm talking about a very interesting class that once upon a time existed, 
which you have in America now a little bit, don't you? In which you have these real rich guys, and they do Duffium. They give the Duffium. I mean, you, you hear that, right? I'm talking people who are very successful in business, and they can write this farm and love this. They, you, you do have that. So the son of one married the daughter of the other, like that. So Epstein married Berlin, which means that he was a uh, brother-in-law of the next Russian Shiva of Voloshinus, you know, which is just kind of interesting. Now, that story will play out in funny ways, we'll see, but nevertheless, there it was. And uh, so their son is Chaim Berlin. You know, the famous team of Chaim Berlin? No, I said that wrong. No, I said that wrong. This is the sister. Right. So, uh, yeah, right. Their son was someone else. So the young Archa Shulchan, I'll call him, married the sister of the Nitziv. But he was only here for two years. And then he went back to his town. He went back to his uh, Rebellion Goldberg, which obviously means that the yeshivish style wasn't what really turned them on. He liked better the halacha lamaisa style. So what I'm saying is that Gedolim are not in a cookie cutter, and they all have different personalities. And one famous typology difference is that some people are into lumdus and they love that stuff. And on the other hand, other people aren't. Other people, if I can use the expression, more halacha lamaisa, sharp, clear, you know, give a, a very clear psak on all kinds of situations and apply a case. They have that kind of legalistic mind. And he obviously was drawn to that. Uh, and I think part of that way of thinking is you have a very misudder dick, organized and clear mind, and that certainly, as we all know, becomes a characteristic of the Archa Shulchan baby big time. Now, um, what is a person like this, who's 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, what does he want to do in life? Um, does he become a rub of a small town? He comes from a rich family. What does he need that junk for? You understand? Rub a small town is a poor situation. That's not what he wants to do. Uh, you want to live in a little stupid village with 30, 40, 50 Jewish families and walk in the mud and, you know, live that kind of life and the salary's going to be nothing anyway, so that's not how you're going to be a parnasa. What do they want that for? Does he want to be a Rosh Hashiva? Eh, it's a hard job in those days. So the answer is, he'd like to be like his father, like his grandfather, great-grandfather. He'd like to be a rich guy who gives a dafiyami, to use the American expression. That makes sense, right? In other words, you devote someone so much time to business, but on the other hand, you make your money, no question about it. But on the other hand, the icker part of the day, or you know, you, you, you put the rest of the time into learning just for the becoming a Talmud Chacham, you know, without any kind of careeristic thing whatsoever. That's what his father did. That's what his father-in-law did. That's what others did. I think that was like the highest class, uh, except for the big, big rub on him. So if you want to know that society, you know, what's the pyramid at the top of what you call the Gedolim, but under, under them are these, uh, you know, rich Balabatim, Talmud Chachamim. And under them come the, the Class B rabbis, which are the usual, you know, in, in the small towns, villages, and that sort of thing. That's, uh, you know, how it went. Uh, now, to tell you the truth, that can be your ambition, but you have to have a head for business. He clearly didn't have a business because he had no training in that. All of his years, the type of boy I've been talking about didn't see what the father and see how he runs the business. The boy I'm talking about had a natural natia for learning. Obviously, the parents were very firm, so they wanted to encourage that. And so they ruined him. He became a guy, mainly for learning. And so, uh, the famous story is that his wife came from a similar mercantile background, and the wife said, I can run a store, and you can sit and learn. Old, classic old Ashkenaz style. And uh, it was okay, and it, there's a famous story, I don't know if it's true or not, I think I've told it, but it's a, a very cute story, which brings out a certain, a certain type and the story is that when he was young, like I say, he was a late teenager or something like that, 20 years old at the most, uh, you know, he didn't, go, he didn't even know where the store was. He ran the store. He, went, he spent all day long at Basin Matters, you know, or the Shoal, where they learned. That's how he did in the old days. 
And uh, one time they said, you know, the government sending the inspector, and formerly you, not your wife, run the store. So you have to be in the store, you know, for, 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 for the government inspector. And so he said, okay, if I have to, I have to. And he went walking up and down Main Street out of town, and people said, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my store. Ich <laughs> krum. Ich krum. You know, he didn't even know where his store was. So, like I said before, this is not exactly what you call a head for business. Well, that ain't working out, okay? That ain't working out. So what that means is that uh, instead he had to find, uh, shall I say, other types of, uh, of activities to do. Now, I don't think that family had a problem with money, as I said before. So what did he do? Well, uh, started giving... This, um, this is a typology of the old country. Uh, what you do is like this. There was a local yeshiva there, and the rabbi had a basin, and so he gave classes in the yeshiva, you know, a small yeshiva. And this is, you know, in Babroisk. And uh, again, I tell you again, the town was growing all the time. Uh, money was there. Uh, this is exactly when they started making the railroads on, so the Jews really got in on that as well as, as, as provisioning the garrison. So the Lubavitch made money, and the, 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 the Litvaks made money. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's what part of for me. You can, you can make a little bit of a living from giving class in yeshiva. And the Rav took him as a dayan. And so, uh, consequently, uh, what shall I say? Uh, he could have had a life like that, in which he would have been, I don't know, what would have happened? He would have probably stayed in that kind of situation. Maybe he would have become the rabbi after the Rav died, but I don't even think so because they don't take local boys, you know how it goes. And so, uh, meanwhile, the wife's business went uh, bust, and uh, they went bankrupt, which is very common in the boom and bust cycles of those 19th century era, pure capitalism. And by the time the story's over, he had to find something uh, something different. Now, uh, he was, uh, this is already, he spent a good 10 years doing this, I would think. So uh, that's just very interesting. I mean, that's, that's, that's a long time living in your hometown, uh, married to a rich girl, and you're rich, and you, you know, it's, it's not a bad life, right? You give a shiurim every day, you sit on the basin, with, you know, and you handle the showers. If you're built that way, you like that, that's how he was built. But um, what shall I say? Uh, after a while, he, he started to get ambitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That means he wanted to do something where he could display his full talents. Nothing wrong with that at all. That's perfectly fine. And so the result was, they start looking for a position, and uh, in his mid-30s, uh, he got a position as a, a rov in a, not a large town at all, small town, you probably never heard of it, Novozivkov, Novozivkov, in uh, Belarus, north of where he was. And uh, the only funny thing is like this, this is a town that was, that was almost 100% Hasidim, almost 100%. The only thing is like this. The Hasidim were divided into two groups. Hasidim A and Hasidim B. Half was Chabad, the other half was Chernobyl. So uh, some speculate that's exactly why they got a Litvak. Because, you know, A doesn't agree that there should be a Hasid from B should be the rabbi. And B doesn't agree that a Hasid from A should be the rabbi. So you get a neutral guy. And this is the basic basis. Of, and he was there now for a while. I mean, he was there for a good 20 years in Novozivkov. Um, that's where he started writing the Rechashokhan, actually. And uh, what's famous is, let me, let me put it this way. Suppose you were him, and suppose the 1860s, and you come to a town with a, where everybody, it, it, for, first of all, you ain't David and Nusachashkas. <laughs> Let's just start with that, okay? Get that out of the way. Number two, I'm me, myself, and I'm personally familiar with that. Number two, 
the Chassidim have their way of doing halach uh, even, and a lot of other anhogas. And Lubavitch specifically has its own way with everything. And so uh, he made it his business, uh, 1863, 64, the years are not exactly clear to me, uh, to go visit the Tzemach Tzedek, who was still alive. He was an old man. He died not long afterwards with the famous uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe and uh, the famous uh, Menachem Mendel Schneerson of the 1800s. Uh, and here there's a whole business because he's supposed to have spent a month there. This is where I was actually held up a little bit. I noticed from the past. Let me put it this way. The son of the Urcha Shulchan, got it? The son of the Urcha Shulchan is the Torah Tamima. Some of you may know that, some of you knew not. So the father was Yechiel Michal Epstein, the son was a Baruch Mordechai Epstein, is that his name? Yaman uh, Epstein, whatever his name is. The Torah Tamima. Now, um, the Torah Tamima, I think everybody's familiar with what I'm talking about. That's a safer in the Chumash which gives you Chazals. Uh, you know, he quotes the relevant Gemaras per Pusik by Pusik. Now, it's not a complete job, it's not a third job. If you want the complete job, you get the Torah Shlema, but it was, it was and is popular, correct? Everybody's seen the Torah Tamima, a lot of people use it. Okay, so the Torah Tamima, this son of the Archashokhan, also wrote this autobiography of a very weird nature with a couple, like four fat volumes called Makar Baruch. Again, maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't seen it. It's kind of well known. He wrote in the 1920s, I think, in the 30s, maybe. So his, and this Torah to me was killed by the Nazis, meaning he was in Pinsk. That's what it was. He's in one of the six million. Okay. Now, the Torah Tamima is a book uh, which has only been notorious for inaccuracies. Uh, you know, a lot of say he made up, he didn't make up, he heard this, he writes it. It's, it's like that. There's a certain genre. The question is always not whether there are inaccuracies in it. The question is, is, is this particular story inaccurate or is it accurate? You know, knows how much. Now, he has a whole long piece where he writes about his father, which is totally understandable, and about his father's um, visit to the Tzemotzedek, uh, which is just very interesting. And they have all these conversations, and he's there for a month, and the Tzemotzedek says very close to him, and the Tzemotzedek says all kinds of things. Uh, you know, what shall we say? Lashon Har about this famous rabbi. He said the Noda Yehud volume one is good, and the volume two is no good, for example. And uh, about Yonas and Aveshitz, and he has about the Vilna Gon. And he said, you know, the Vilna Gon was right. Though we were going too far. You've heard this before that you know the Chassidim were going too far in one direction, and the opposition of Vilna Gon actually had a salutary effect. Uh, all kind of stories like this, which if you're a are very disturbing. So, uh, is are these made up stories? Uh, or to be perfectly accurate, because I have to be a little bit accurate in these podcasts, not very accurate. Are these stories 100% made up? Are they 90% true and 10% made up? Are they 95% true and 5% made up? Are they 5% true and 95% made up? You see, you talk like that. Because he used a certain genre, which you have very often in 19th century, in which is almost like a historical novel, although I don't, that's not the right word to use, in which... He puts a lot of uh, details and, uh, you know, spices it up with, uh, you know, then the Tzemach said he got up and moved around the room, or, you know, things that he wouldn't know, writing 50 years later, if I didn't tell him a blow-by-blow description of every single second he had with him. It's like a literary style. Now, it doesn't matter to me, but but I'll tell you something funny, by the way. Uh, this is in English, if you want it. Uh, do you remember, are you old enough to remember 
was it 30 years ago or something like that, when they published My Uncle Dennis Eve, and all hell broke loose. Lakewood Hater, I think it was, long, long ago, in the 90s probably. Um, you know, they send out books sometimes with an art scroll. So somebody, the art scroll now, art scroll, somebody translated part of the Makar Baruch. It's called My Uncle Dennis Eve, because that's, you know, get it? The Torah to me, the son, he would be a nephew of Dennis Eve, the person writing the story. And uh, he learned by Nenetziv the uh, Torah to me did. And therefore, he wrote a very 19th century, frank-seeming kind of uh, memoir. And, oh my goodness, it all blew up because he said things there which weren't politically correct and may not have been true. And I, I, I remember exactly, but I think he said Nenetziv, like the Uncle Tom's cabinet or something like that, he read the newspaper every day. Things that by our standards aren't scandals, but by the Lakewood Haters stands were scandals. Plus, it was known beforehand, you can't trust everything in the, in the Torah Tamima. I didn't say it's not true. Sometimes they are true. That's the funny part. I, I remember Rabbi Ruderman many, many years ago. That, you know, he wasn't impressed with the Mekor Burkha being historically accurate. But uh, again, we come back to the question of whether all of it's true or not, not true. Anyway, um, and Lakewood pulled it back. And, you know, it's called My Uncle Dennis Eve. And uh, what not many people are aware of is that there was a follow-up a couple years later. I remember seeing this, oh, decades ago that uh, he it was published by Targum Press, I don't know when, uh, it's called Recollections, in which somebody else went and translated another piece of the park of the uh, Makar Baruch, including uh, the whole piece where the Archa Shulchan visited the Semachetic, and, uh, you know, they had all these unusual conversations about the Nesivas versus the Kisavis, all, all kinds of things like that. Now, the only reason I'm mentioning it today is the Labavish used to have a historian who passed away a number of years ago, Yeshua Munshine, who was a big historian. There was a real Lubavitcher from Eretz Yisrael, and he was a big historian. He had a job at the uh, library of the Hebrew University. I forget what. And he knew that. But he, but, but he was a super Lubavitcher. He said himself, he said, I'm not objective. I don't claim to be objective. Right? I remember those words. I saw it. Kamoravim shekadmuni gamani ini objective. I'm not objective either. But I need Modavash, who's unlike them, you know, <laughs> Uh, I admit that I'm uh, not objective. The other historians uh, fake it. So it is interesting. And he went after the Torah Tamima, and he said this whole story about Darach HaShulchan, and the Tzema says it's not true, and he proved in a hundred ways it couldn't be true, and therefore the Torah Tamima is a bunch of lies. Literally, it's a tissue of lies. And, uh, you know, the Lohayu if anything, the, the Rebbe and the Chassidim didn't hold of Darach HaShulchan, and even after Darach HaShulchan came out, like this, it was a very interesting kind of article. Uh, let me publish it in, uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever. It was a constant brouhaha. What I'm, what's interesting is there was like a response to it, uh, a detailed response uh, by uh, Rabbi Henkin, who was killed with his wife. Some of you know I'm talking about a couple years ago in a terrible terrorist accident. A Tom Henkin was this brilliant young guy. Obviously, he's a great grandson or grandson, whatever, of Henkin great-grandson, the famous Rob Henkin, and, uh, no, no, it's not true, the whole story's not a tissue of lies, part of it's made up, but like, uh, something like, uh, you know, 85% of it's true, or 90% of it's true, and he went into extreme detail each on the other, and I remember the, the comments online are, are funnier than the articles, you know, in Hebrew, and so, uh, you know, how can you say that the, that the whole Torah to me was not true, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, used to use the Torah to me in Shul, and then the other say this and that. You know, it got into a business. So I'm simply saying, 
that this encounter, the Aruch HaShulchan, with the Tzemach Tzedek, became a whole historical brouhaha, which is of interest to people like me, probably not to you, but I just want you to know that this exists. It's, it's, it's very interesting, because it brings out, uh, you know, um, what should I say, different partisan issues. Uh, but whatever the case may be, Darach HaShulchan was around for 20 years, very successfully in this town, and the Lubavitchers liked him, he liked them, you know, no, no, there, was, there was no issues. Uh, and uh, if anything, he had to, as, as I understand it, he had to like, uh, what should I say, make peace between the two different Hasidic groups. Uh, one was the, you know, disciples of the Chernobyl, and the other one was the disciples of Lubavitch. And welcome to uh, White Russia. I tell you, it's very different than Poland, and very different than Lithuania. In Poland, we all Hasidim, nothing to talk about Lithuania is usually misnagging, nothing to talk about. In Belarus, you always have these very, very interesting uh, combinations and situations. Um, so there he was for 20 years in Novozivkov. So that means that the guy's, uh, let's say, 30, 33, something like that, to the age of, uh, what would it be, 40, 50-something. You know, so the, main, the middle years of his life, okay? Like, let's say for, roughly speaking, it's like the age of 33 to the age of 53. He's robbing this small town, Novozivkov. And uh, what does he do? He's not giving shiurim, like any yeshiva, there's no yeshiva over there. He's a, he's a rov. What is a rov? It, it, a rov is what you make of it. It's what you make of it. But he likes being in Bezden. And he likes, uh, you know, dealing with halachic shilas. And he likes mastering the poskim. And so he obviously conceives this idea around the time that he's about 40 years old, which is, you know, <laughs> let me put it this way, midlife crisis. That's not the right word to use, midlife crisis. Midlife crisis in the sense of what do you want to do, you know, special? How do you want to show your personality? And uh, in his case, he conceived of a grand project, which was to imitate the Rambam. Obviously, he must have a hero worship of the Rambam, which you kind of see a lot in the, his writings. And the Rambam, as we all know, undertook to write the Mishnah Torah, and he did do it. And in which he did call a Torah Kula, correct? The Rambam. I'm talking about Kachim, Taras, everything. And so, uh, this Yechil Michal Epstein, who's robbing this little town of Zivkov, he conceived the idea of executing a grand um, Mishnah Torah of his own, but adjusted to the realities of the post-Maimonidean era of the 19th century. And so you can't write something from scratch so what does he end up writing? Of course, he ends up writing the, the Archa Shulchan. This, to me, is very disinteresting because um, what you're really writing is a kind of a code of laws, kind of. But it can never really be a code of law in Judaism. I've spoken about this in the past for a whole bunch of reasons. But there's no such thing as a code of laws, you know, uh, that you expect everybody to follow or, or uh, you know, without a, 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 an enforcement mechanism or something like that. But you know, when I having said that, you know what I mean when I say he wants to be like another Rambam. And in the nineteenth century, uh, the number of commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch had reached such a stage that it was just impossible for the average Talmud Chacham to follow what's going on. Um, in other words, I would say it was impossible for even the B plus level Talmud Chacham to follow what's going on, meaning the Rambam and the Tor and the Beis Yosef and all that stuff, plus all the guys in the Shulchan Aruch, you got the Shach and the Taz and the Magad Ramadz, plus, after that, 
you already start to have the Levush, and you start to have, uh, like, for example, the Urbatumim and the Kisos and the Sivas, and similar works, you know, Avmaluim and whatever. The, the, the stuff got, like, like, out of hand for the average person to handle. Now, not for him, right? He was that type that he, his life story that I just told you unfolded in such a way that he had the luxury of devoting what he wanted to do. He devoted his whole life to mastering this material. Here he is, he's 40 years old, what do you do with the mastery of all this material? And so what he did was he undertook to, uh, shall I say, rewrite the Shulchan Aruch? That's not the right word. But to write his own grand style, which of course became Derach HaShulchan. And what's interesting to me is the style that he chose. Because when it comes to writing a law code, you have several models in front of you. Not that you have to follow them. Uh, but he followed a particular one. Uh, one model is to do like the Rambam. Just write the halacha straightforward with no footnotes or anything like that. And uh, just say, here it is, my way to highway, and just trust me, I know what I'm talking about. That is the Maimonidean route. Then there's the tour in which you don't you do the opposite of that. You, every subject, you bring down a whole bunch of different uh, shittas. And, and this represents the state of the field. Uh, in other words, the tour for the 14th century was like the Piskei was today, something like that. And then you find... In the 1500s, of Yezu Karo and the Ramah, where, as you know, they they write the long version, in which you give the whole Makar, everything, from the Gemara up. Uh, and he, so again, then you, uh, that's the tour, and the, and, and the uh, I'm sorry, that's the Beis Yosef and the Darkei um, Moshe. And then you write it up in, in short form in terms of the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah and the Mapa. But, uh, and that that's okay too, you know, anything works if it works. And then you find uh, the Levush, who was student the Ramah, and wrote the Levush. And anybody knows what I'm talking about, if you've ever seen the Levush, that's a certain style in which you're sort of discursive, aren't you? You, you, you discuss each, uh, you, you write it in a literary fashion, um, and you discuss each halachic topic using the Shulchan Aruch schema, you know, the chapters of the Shulchan Aruch, which are those of the tour. I mean, the fourfold, you know, Biz of Archaima, Yordea, Ebenezer, Choshim, Mishpah, of course. And uh, so you're following that uh, system of encyclopedic organization of the information. But you do so in, in like, taking the reader along with you, and you uh, have, a, like, a conversation, you see? And you start with the basic the background, and you discuss the different opinions out there. Then you tell what the, your, your, the Shulchan Aruch says, then we say what your opinion is. This, obviously, is who Dorcha uh, Shulchan decided to model it on. So there are two books of this type that I know about. There's the Mosh and there's Dorcha Shulchan. Obviously, written a couple hundred years later, Arch Shulchan is bigger and better. But that's the style that he chose, which is okay with me, except, and it's great, but I always have one big problem, and that is it doesn't follow paragraph by paragraph with the Shulchan Arch. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you want to find something, it's not necessarily so easy to find. Now, you can, but for those people who like to be a quick lookup, it's not so push it, okay? It's not so push it. Until recently, when they reprinted the uh, Arch Shulchan and tried to fix that. So, uh, this is who he is. But, uh, he mamish perfected that style. Now, uh, what I mean is, anybody who's ever done anything in the, in the Aruch HaShulchan knows, and, you know, those of you who are stuck out there in Corona land and maybe grounded in the next couple of weeks, the way the uh, government is looking at having to close down society, you have a lot of time in your hands, uh, you could do a lot worse. If you're a Barhochi, then going through some parts, at least, of Hilchus Pesach, with the Archa because I've always found, at least in the last 30 years, I always found the Archa is the best cheater book on a lot of areas, particularly 
in uh, the difficult things or the complex things because what he does is he has a very nice way of organizing the material and you get it little by little. He had a very logical and organized mind. And he ended up writing, like the Rambam, over the course of many decades. Now, the Rambam did it very quickly. The Rambam knocked off the whole thing in, in like 10 years, 9 years. It's unbelievable, because the Rambam was the Rambam. Derech HaShulchan, for other reasons, it took him close to half century and maybe didn't finish. It's not clear. Uh, but he ended up writing on all the areas of the Shulchan Aruch, plus the second half called Shulchan Aruch HaAsid. I don't know if so many people are familiar with that. Uh, that's less well known, in which he does all the Kachim and Tyrus and that kind of stuff in the Zeroim. So if you have the whole set of the Yarcha Shulchan, meaning the regular Shulchan plus the Yarcha Shulchan Ha'atid, as they call it in Israel, you have um, an unbelievable set of cheater books. I use them all the time, especially the Shulchan Ha'atid. I use it all the time when I used to do the uh, the, the art scroll, you know, like Zvachim and those kind of Prakim, especially in the, uh, you know, Kachim. I did some of that. Uh, you know, you always want to see what the Yarcha because he has every, you know, he has a following according to the system of the Rambam and other systems, and it's and he's very thorough, and he answers every question. So uh, he just developed this style, which many people found to be Gavaldic. Now, in a, stepping back for a moment, the uh, Archa Shulchan uh, is part of a, a, of a general interesting phenomenon, which lasted from, I don't know, let me just think about this, uh, for about 100 years or so, 120 years, and that is this attempt to uh, ride the monster, you know, to, to, to get a hold of the exploding material, exploding in quantity. As I said before, by the time you got to the late 1700s, you had, of course, the Rambam and the Torah and all those commentaries, and the Shulchan Aruch and those commentaries, and then the commentaries had commentaries, as we know, you know, and what does the average guy know what to do? And because of that, really, I mean, it became impossible to steer your way through all the literature. It's just too much literature. And that's assuming that every poor rabbi or, or student had access to the literature, which they didn't have. You know, you have to have all these different books. Uh, and there were attempts, as we know, to solve that problem by giving kitzers. For example, the bear hative was, you know, so if the person who can't afford to buy the uh, the two guys on the side, so you read the, the bear hative, or the pishe tshuva, because who can afford to get all those shots and tshuva's books way back when? And so he collected from the different shots. These are, are ways of trying to uh, you know, solve that problem of too much quantity, you know. But uh, it's not simple, is it? So there begins an attempt in the late 1700s for about 120 years to, is this very interesting to Kufa in Jewish history as far as I'm concerned, to make the halakhic literature more accessible, if not exactly to the masses, at least to a much wider audience. Uh and it starts with the Shulchan Acharav, with the Lubavitch. Then uh, you get the Chayyonim, the Chachmas on them. Uh, and then you get, let's see, the Archa uh, Shulchan and, and, and the uh, Mishnah Bura. And I forgot, the Kitzer Shulchan Arach. These are all from one Tkufa, you know what I mean? And what are they all involving in? They're trying to make the wide material accessible in a literary way and in a Kitzer way and an organized way to... You know, it's different audiences, but basically the audience is, uh, you know, the Talmud Chacham, the person, who, but, but, you know, Talmud Chacham to some level, not that you master all of halachic literature, because to master all that can be a lifetime enterprise, especially in those days, they didn't have a computer, you know, they didn't have encyclopedia Talmudists, 
All the cheater books didn't exist. So they created the cheater books, if I can use that terminology. Uh, so the Archa Shulchan fits exactly in that genre. Um, after the period of the Archa Shulchan Mishnabura, has anybody done that in the last hundred years? Now we're in 2020, since 1920. Uh, you know, not, not, I mean, I know you got the Kafa a few things like that. N- not really. I mean, maybe Avad Yosef. Uh, that's the only one that occurs to me. And I don't know his stuff so well in that particular, you know, with, in, in his law codes. Now, to some degree, it's like that. It was just interesting. So all these classic works came out of the same genre uh, and the same area of, of Europe. They all came out of uh, Lithuania, White Russia, and uh, and the kids from uh, from Oberland. Uh, so uh, all these famous halacha books, Darcha Shulchan the Chayyotam, Darcha Harav, Darcha Shulchan the Mishnabura, they all come from you know Lithuania, White Russia. It's, it's just interesting, you know? Matter of fact, if you want to be very tech, I'm just sitting here, um, the Lubavitch is from White Russia, Darcha Shulchan is from White Russia, the Chavetz Chaim lived in White Russia, uh, isn't that interesting? You know, all these people coming from the same area. The Chayyotim lived in Vilnius, that's a little bit different. Anyway, you get my point. And that means they lived a very Jewish life. And the Hamon Am, you saw, was getting a lot of stuff wrong. The Chayyotim writes it this way all the time. And so it's a, it's, it's a desire to clarify, which is the best thing in the world. Which is the best thing in the world. And so um, the result is that uh, he devoted years to this. Now, he had the money. By the time he was in the raw business, I guess the money just run out. When he, by the time he's 40 years old. And it's well known that what he started to do, uh, let me put it this way, his grandson, is that his grandson or nephew? Uh, his grandson, that's right, was a, a Bar-Ilan University, Mayor Berlin, who wrote from Velazhen Biz Yushalam, a very famous uh, two-volume Yiddish autobiography. And he has an old chapter about his grandfather, he lived with him for a while. And he already knew him when he was uh, in, in the Vardic, well, I'll talk about it a little bit later. And what he did was he said, listen, he sat in the basement all day long. He learned, he did his own learning in the in the middle of the night. You know, that style, the old days. Uh, he probably went, I assume he went to bed. I'm assuming this. I assume he went to bed probably 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, something like that. He probably woke up at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. This is what he did. Then from 1 to, 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 to daybreak, uh, you know, he have quiet time. So he did his own learning and, his, and uh, used to write shalos and chubas, you know, chubas to everybody uh, because he had a famous reputation. And he's, and he's writing up his, uh, you know, chidushim and his ideas for his magnum opus. And then during the daytime, he sat all day long with the basin. Uh, he liked to do that with a couple day on him. And people came in and out, out and in. And, uh, and while he was in the basin, he did two things at once. In other words, he's listening to people, you know, present the cases. The person I'm talking about by the time he was 40 years old, and certainly after in his life, and he died when he was about 80, he's been through all these childs. You know, you, you've heard the cases before, and you're a super expert in, in what to apply. It didn't take him very long to issue up sock. So, you know, I mean, the guy knows you know what I'm saying. And so, you know, the, 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 the cases don't last too long. What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Get out of here. Come back in five minutes. Here's the sock, and we'll, and we'll write it up. You know, that that's that's who he was, and in between you also write up stuff in the in in the um, in the Rakhashochan. And there's no question in my mind that this is the reason why um, he his the first thing he published was Choshen Mishpat, because he's running a basin and he hears these cases of Choshen Mishpat all the time. I mean, every day, you know, towing and Nitan, you know, things like that. And uh, he was totally cold in them, and so 
He started in 1870. Um, he didn't publish the first volume till like 14 years later. But that had to do, I think, with money. I read somewhere, I forget where, that he had made money. And uh, plus, in order to get anything published, he lived in Russia. This is Belarus. This is not uh, Poland. This is directly under the Tsarist regime. Since he came from a rich family, he, um, he had a secular education, believe it or not. When I say secular education, notice by the standards of the time, he knew stuff that's going on in the world, geography, politics, things like that, which is very interesting. You wouldn't think so. And he knew Russian language. That's almost unique among the Gedolim. Rabbi Zikol couldn't speak Russian, for example. Most of the big Rabbanim couldn't speak Russian. He talked Yiddish, even though they lived in Russia. But since he came from a business family, they dealt with the Russian government and, and the army and the provisioners. So he was taught Russian from uh, childhood. And uh, this was a big plus to being a rov in a town because uh, that meant you could deal with the authorities. And he was a very successful rov as a, as a rabbi is concerned. Uh, he was, as I say before in this town, never Zifu for 20 years. And then uh, in 1883, so how old was he? Uh, 53 years old, 54 years old, for the rest of his life. So for another 25 years, he was Rav Novartic. You've all heard of Novartic. So he was Rav Novartic when the Novartic movement started there. Uh, that means he was the Ab Bezdin. You understand? In, in Novartic. And the same thing. He ran the Bezdin all day long and did the same thing they did before. You know, his, his style was set. One of the reasons they took him there, not the only reason, was he knows Russian. And, uh, I mean, besides the fact he's a giant Tamakara, he knows Russian. And he will be successful in dealing with the government. And it's actually very interesting because he lived at a time when um, 95% of the time, the Rabbanim couldn't speak Russian. And Kalvachomer, they didn't have a secular education. You know, he lived in the 1800s. And the Russian government insisted, you know, for their reasons, uh, that the official rub of a town has to be somebody that, number one, speaks Russian or German, and number two, has some kind of an education, at least a community college-level education, as we would call it in America. They didn't insist on a PhD, but at least, like you say, a certificate from a community college. Uh, there was no rabbi that had like that. You know, people like the you know, Netsiv, you know, forget it. They, were, they rejected, in principle, secular education. Uh, they rejected, in principle, uh, the, the language of uh, the Goyim. So this is how our ancestors lived, those who lived in the Tsarist Russia. They lived in Russia and didn't, didn't talk Russian. Now, not everybody, uh, some did. So the result is, just trying to give you a little bit of a background, the result is that you could have somebody, this happened all the time, like the Rizikon Inspector in Kovno. The government said like this, we're only going to recognize as a rabbi uh, somebody who meets our requirements. The Jewish community said, we're only going to recognize a, a rabbi as somebody who fulfills our traditional Jewish Talmudist uh, 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 you know, credentials. And uh, so we want to rub with the old school, and so neither side would budge. And you just had the very weird system of Rav Mitam, in which there would be an official rabbi paid, forcibly paid by the Kildas salary, and he'd be somebody who was not a Talmud Chacham almost always, uh, a pharmacist, Shalom Aleichem, the, 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 the author was a, was a, a government rabbi. And their job is uh, a real job, believe it or not. Their job is to keep um, track the official record of the births and deaths and marriages and divorces, things like that. And those, what they call the metric books, the official records. And if you lie or cheat on the official records, you can be severely punished. So if somebody wanted to be recognized that they're married for tax purposes and otherwise inheritance purposes, by the Russian uh, courts, by the, by, by the Russian state, uh, 
you had to get that marriage registered with the rabbi. Uh, same thing with a Catholic, with a Catholic priest and a Protestant, Protestant priest. That was the rules in Tsarist Russia. So if you get chuppah kedushim from a rov, and it's not mentored into the official metric books, you're not married. And if you get a, a, a get from a rov, and you're not, you know, officially mentored into the books, you're as far as the Russian government is concerned, you're still married to the first guy. So they were like gatekeepers. You could not avoid dealing with them. You had to go through these rav mitams. That's just the way it went. And it was a chelashem because the rabboni and mitam you know, were were not from. They're mechal shabbat. They trade from this and other very often. The official rabbi was an official rabbi, but the official rabbi looked like a pitiful figure because the Russians didn't hold from him because he can't speak Russian and he doesn't know anything that's going on in the world. If he was super from, he's a potlin, you know, he doesn't even know, uh, you know, uh, you know what, uh, what's a, a city 50 miles away. You know, that, that guy, you had to live in an alternative universe in order to have respect for your own rov. Now, once in a while, like Dorcha Shochan, you actually got a, a person with a rov who did know Russian, he actually had what you and I would call secular yadiyas, um, but he didn't have a, 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 a formal education. He didn't go to high school. He didn't go to elementary school. He, he certainly didn't go to a community college. You understand? So, uh, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, but on the other hand, although officially he didn't match the criteria, but Lemaise he did. And so if you lived in the Vardic, for example, in the last 25 years, there was a guy, it's just very interesting to me, there was somebody who was the official rov, and he handled all the books, but whenever the government wanted to deal with the Jewish communities, they went straight to uh, the Archashokhan, and they could talk to him, and he could talk to them, and he made it his business to get along very well with the Russian generals and the Russian mayors, and there are a lot of stories about that, and, uh, you know, obviously he could use that to get a Jew out of jail, and, you know, in situations, and, uh, you know, that part of the Rabbonus he was able to handle it. It's unusual that, you know, uh, 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 such a gado would have that kind of uh, broad background, but considering the class... Uh, economic class he came from are not so surprising, you know. It's just a very interesting part. So he was therefore a rabbi in Novozivkov and then at the end in Novartic for many, many years. Now, as the rabbi in Novartic, there are many famous stories about him. The most important one, uh, and this one I, I'm sharing with you because, as I say, it just struck me as a coincidental, uh, a remarkable coincidence in the context of uh, the fact that we closed down all the shuls uh, this week in Baltimore, New York, and elsewhere because of the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, it's obviously a very, uh, what you say, controversial step uh, here in Baltimore. A lot of people don't like it. I don't like it either. But uh, but it happened. And what do you do with the Tefillah B'Tzibur and, and things of that nature? Now, I saw this story years ago in the Mary Barry Lawn book, which I'm too lazy to come and pull out over there, the Yiddish book. But it's really cool, and it's very well known. You'll know in a second. And that is that when he became the Rav in, uh, in Novartic, so uh, a problem you had in the old days, which is an old problem in Claudius Row, is Friday night, when does Shabbos begin? Um, you know, do you do taste? Do you do Shkia? Do you do Rabbeinu Tom? All that sort of thing. And there's a whole history to it. Now it's not the time to go into detail, but suffice it to say that for perfectly understandable reasons, a well-known problem and tension that you had in from communities down the centuries was when exactly to start Shabbos. And the reason I say it is because uh, it's just, you know, in a poor society, and everybody needed all the money they could get, naturally, so you want to keep the store open as late as possible. Um, 
in Russia, uh, in, in white Russia, a lot of times the Jews had balagolas, you know what I mean? They're coachmen, and you want to get... Imagine, for example, if you were a taxi driver from guy, and you literally live from what you make on, on the fares. So uh, everyone you cop around is extra money, right? Suppose you're a barber. Every extra guy is extra money. It's not nothing to laugh at, and you're not rich. And so they wanted to start Shabbos as late as possible. There's always been this economic tension to make Shabbos as late as possible, Versus the opposite idea, which is, no, you shouldn't you make Shabbos early, actually. Uh, you should add to Shabbos and, and so forth. And which way does it go? Now, throughout Jewish history, I don't know if you noticed or not, um, especially in the 19th century in Russia, where times are getting a little bit more from, but it's even older than that. Uh, so the Kehillah, as we all know from the Gemara time, they used to blow the shofar. I'm talking about before blow the shofar. They would try to get it that the people should start getting ready for Shabbos, you know, not at the last minute. Hachonas uh, for Shabbos is, is very important. The, the Shulchanor talks about it. The Gemara talks about that. I'm talking about getting ready on Friday, and certainly Friday afternoon for Shabbos is part of keeping Shabbos. And, uh, you know, just look at the Shulchanor and the, and the books that come out of the Shulchanor. Uh, how important it is to prepare the food and then uh, take a shower and all sorts of things like that. Well, that's a middle-class thing. You know, if you have a Parnassah and you can afford it, even today in America... There are plenty of people that can find themselves in situations in which they have to be at work almost to the last minute. Um, I know I'm not an accountant, but this is the time of the year, you know, when, when the accountants stay real late. And it could be, unless you plan your day right, you you come right home, you go right to the show, you don't have a time for a shower. So maybe you have to organize that and take a shower early in the morning. I'm just using shower as an example. Or shave, or this, or that. In other words, your your economic situation might be one in which you simply do not have the luxury to do the kind of things that they talk about in the Gemara. We say, oh, he would wake up and would go and uh, cut the wood and, you know, cook the food and all this thing. And Rabbi Yosef did this or this one did that. That's all nice in theory. And it is nice in theory, right? It's all part of being Mechabe Shabbos, which is a very, very big deal. But not everybody finds himself with the economic situation they're able to do it. I'm simply telling you that the lower classes, the lower economic classes, always had this issue in in uh, in Europe. And... Uh, Usually, it was a game. You know, you'd run around and tell everybody, close the store. they say, any minute, but, you know, it's already time Shabbos, and then close the store. Let me turn this off for a second. Hi, I had to uh, uh, switch to a different, uh, not tape or whatever you call it, this one here, because we're running out of time. I said I was afraid I would go over, but anyway, it's a Karuni, or it doesn't matter. This is, I told you for too big of a topic. I was saying, I think, that there used to be a tension uh, between the fact you're supposed to close, you know, start Shabbos at this and this time and everybody staying too late. And uh, me, myself, and I, I had like a great-grandfather or somebody like that, great-great-grandfather. At least that's what my father told me when I was young, back in Minsk, you know, 1800s, that uh, he was a frummy or something. And then he, his shtick was he would go to the train station, uh, you know, around the time... Uh, let's say half hour before Shabbos, and you know, go and bother and chase away all the Jewish uh, drushka drivers. You know, the uh, the Jewish uh, cab drivers with the horse and wagon. Go home. You know, go home, and it's Shabbos coming. You know, that's that sort of thing. Now, uh, which is very common. This is just the way it went. And uh, they talk in the post game. You know about the in some place they used to actually start Shabbos on Friday night, seventy two minutes. And I'm hungry. It is what it is. So. The famous story that's told, the Yarach is, when he came to the Vardagin, when it happened, 
and uh, he wasn't going to have that happen, but he saw they're doing it. And so he simply said, we're starting Shabbos, you know, as we would say today, like an hour before, uh, you know, Shkia or something like that. That's right, an hour before Shkia, whatever. And um, this way, the idea is, even if people are late, by that time, by the time they get and actually make Shabbos, it'll actually be in time for Shabbos. You get what I'm saying, right? You're starting very early. The official Shabbos, even those who are a little bit late, will at least, by the time they start Shabbos, it'll actually be, you know, not into Shabbos. And the famous Misa goes, that, and I see it over here that they bring it and they, uh, they quote it, although they don't quote the source, because this is Ozbahadar, I have in front of me the Archa Shulchan, their Haredim, and the story is really from the autobiography of uh, Mayor Barlan, who was the head of the, the founder of the Mizrahi movement, so they didn't want anybody to know that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, he said, he came to Shul and he said, we're starting Shabbos early. The Balabatim said, no, you're not. He said, yes, we are. No, you're not. And I mean the Pum, the uh, Parnosim and Hagim and all, Manhigim, all the, the big shots said, we're not doing it. He said, yes, we are. And, you know, this is, in other words, I don't interfere in your area, but in religion, this is my area, and I'm telling you, I'm the rubber, we're going to do it. And they had a tug of war, and he went, the famous story is, into the, uh, into the show, Basement Shagaro, on uh, an hour before Shabbos, on Friday, and he, there was no minion, of course, because an hour before uh, time for davening Mincha, and uh, he went out in the street and gathered together a couple of kids, you know, nine kids, and he said, uh, you know, let's daven Mincha right now, and, you know, while, before anybody there, he did, you do a couple of Shabbos, Chadoni, and Marev, and then he came out of Shul, you get the idea, when everybody still hasn't made Shabbos yet, and walked over, everybody said, good Shabbos, good Shabbos, Shabbos already started, and, uh, I'll read you the uh, the the the, the um, uh, words over here, even though it's a little bit uh, uh, romanticized. Harav posei mahalach berchovayir. He walked home ostentatiously. Pogesh balabat on the bush and big dechol. Obviously, he walked through the streets and nobody else was Shabbos to get. Everybody's weird for big dechol, and uh, you know they're on their way to shul. Let's put it this way, and he's telling everybody good Shabbos. And he came home the very ostentatiously. He made kiddush. And he sat down and, uh, you know, basically finished the meal in time when still Od Hayam Gadol, as we would say, like we, for example, do many of us in Baltimore and in summer, I mean. And, uh, you know, and as far as you can do this, when Shabbos happened, the following Friday, the same thing happened. But, Ach Big March, Philosim and Narim, in his base of Medrash. But this time, he started an hour early. He davened in shul with his uh, nine kids, you know, the nine uh, urchins that he pulled off the street. And uh, then he tells everybody, stay here. And when the Balabatim show up at their accustomed time to daven mincha, b'shoa kvua, boa Balabatim, b'neim chashubi eda, including the richy riches, rotsim heim leftoch betfila. They get ready to daven mincha as they usually do. So let's say for argument's sake, he let's say Shabbos was usually going to be seven o'clock. And he davened at six o'clock. You know, saying he started Mincha and then the Kabbalah Shabbos at six o'clock. So by the time they show up, which is what five of seven, the Marv is already over, and uh, they want to come and daven their own minion. Uh, but this is Europe. Harav ain't a manich. So he stood there by the uh, Omid and he says, "No, no, no! You can't daven uh, Mincha. You can't daven Marv. It's already Shabbos." Khan ani balabos. This is the synagogue. So you're the boss in the. Secular department, I'm the boss as far as the shul is concerned. If you don't want to daven in my minion, it's six o'clock, right? Then there's no minion, and you have to daven be a chidus, 
Ein kanon minyanim. Kan nestaima hatfila betzibur. So here concludes tefila betzibur. So isn't this funny? This I'm reading this the day that uh, we in Baltimore and people all over uh, North America, if not elsewhere, have under different circumstances, of course, said the same thing. Einod kan minyanim. Nobody's allowed to make a minion. Davim biyachidus, and it's for a policy. Now he did it as a policy to try to ram home, which he eventually prevailed to try to ram home the idea that you start should start Shabbos early, and that way, as I say before, you won't even get any problems of getting close to people running into uh, Mechal Shabbos. Uh, we're doing it because of a coronavirus, all the rest of it. But in the same case, he says, "I'm the Rav, and I'm telling you, Einod Kan Minyanim Kan this time at Tefillah B'Tzibur." That's it, it. It just struck me as an interesting coincidence. And uh, what's very famous is that it became known that in Navardic, oh boy, they dabbed Shabbos Meshuggah early. And uh, in the other towns, they used to say that, well, you know, by the time they hit, uh, uh, what's the expression? Uh, <laughs> by the time elsewhere they're saying, um, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Chadodi, uh, by him it's already he's asleep, you know. Uh, I've heard more crude, Rabbi Rottenberg's always on, because told me a more uh, crude form of it, that they, probably more accurate, but uh, that the Hasidim uh, said, but never he did it. So that's just a very famous episode of the uh, of the uh, Bitur Harav. Uh, now, so therefore, he was a classic Rav in this regard. And, uh, you know, he didn't mix with the politics so much. And, uh, you know, uh, he didn't involve in the administration of the kill in the regular way, but on matters which he considered to have halachic uh, consequences, you know, uh, so he, he said, we're doing it my way, okay? We're doing it my way. And uh, uh, what's also interesting is that uh, I told you, he had a fun, very funny family situation because he was married to the sister of the Nitziv, says his brother-in-law. And um, I think, let me remember how this goes. And the Tzib married the daughter of Ibitzel of Elijah, and that's how he got the job in Elijah. So uh, when the Tzib's wife died, uh, so that means, you get what I'm saying, the, again, the Archa Shulchan married the sister of the Tzib. The Tzib's wife eventually died when he was around 50 or something like that. And uh, for Zivik Shani, when the Nasiv remarried, see, he married the daughter of the Archa Shulchan. So that's weird. That means he married his sister's, see, he married his niece, literally. He married his sister's daughter, uh, who was 20. Uh, so first of all, it's an age difference. And second of all, it's a funny relationship. He married his daughter. So she really married my uncle, the Nasiv, <laughs> literally, you know. Uh, now the Torah Tamima, Baruch Alevi Yevsin, that's his name, Baruch Alevi. He was a student in um, uh, um, in Volozhin at that time, and he made the Shedduch, at least. That's what they say, that's what he writes. Uh, but it was all in the family, literally. So the Nitziv married his sister's daughter. So the Aruch HaShulchan was the brother-in-law of the Nitziv, and then the father-in-law of the Nitziv. Isn't that, isn't that weird? Now, um, it was a weird story because... His daughter, the Orcha Shulchan's daughter, after remember how this goes, got married when she was like 18 to this guy who also was from a rich class. Then it's even also came from a rich family. From rich class. They combined Torah, Gadul, and Makamech, rich and learned. And uh, she married this guy, and he was supposed to follow the same kind of career. 
to be a uh, rich businessman, but also mainly a, a big Talmud Chacham. And if I remember the story correctly, because they don't like to talk about this, her husband, this is going to be funny what I'm telling you, her husband turned out that he wasn't so much for learning, he was more for business. He was a from guy, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't put in 12 hours of learning a day, <laughs> you know, he only put in two, that kind of thing. And the wife was real angry. She says, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for a guy that's going to put in like hours and hours of learning every day. In addition, of course, to being a successful businessman. And, uh, you know, they're 18, 19 years old. She obviously very idealistic. That's not what she had in mind. And uh, she wouldn't get divorced. And he wouldn't give her a get. Uh, a young couple. Uh, this is for the internet. And uh, it was a whole scandal. And when he wouldn't give her a get, she ran away and hid with a guy or peasants or some crazy story like that, in which case it really became a scandal, so much so that he gave her a get. And so here you have a 19, 20-year-old girl who came back, and Zarka Shulchan, Hamza's daughter. Why did she divorce her husband? Because he wasn't learning enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is before Beis Yaakov existed. And her brother then made a shidduch with her, with the 50-year-old uncle. So she's 20, he's 50, and she became the wife, the second wife, of the Volaj and Rosh Hashiv of the Nitziv. And they were married, I think, for 15 years, something like that. Uh, maybe a little more. Uh, 15, 20 years. And they were very happily married. She didn't mind the age difference, apparently. She was a great beauty, they say. And so it's a movie. <laughs> this is a miniseries. And, she, and, and, um, and he gave, and she liked running the Yeshiva's administrative side. You get what I'm saying? You know, so she's the mother of uh, Barilan. Uh, you know, that's a, from the second wife uh, and her son, who's like 13 when the father died or so, so, something like that, uh, 13 or 14. Uh, so it's very interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's Mamash, a, a family drama. And she was very happy and successful in helping the Nitzvah. She liked to do this, be uh, head of Yeshiva 400 guys, the best Yeshiva in the world. And... Um, she helped him with the money and the chayvis and the administrative uh, things like that. And, uh, you know, uh, so Nitziv had two sons, Chaim Berlin, and then this one, um, Mayor Berlin. But they're like 20, 30 years apart, whatever, however long they are. They're uh, uh, quite different. Um, so the Archa Shulan had this, you know, funny kind of family uh, situation, um, which is, you know, as I always say, it's kind of interesting. But uh, he's very different than Nitziv. How so? That Siv lived to be a Rosh Hashiva. Now he also was the Rav of the Velazhin. That's he was both, but his main Hano in life was running the Yeshiva. Darach Hashulchan, by contrast, was a Rav Rav, and I'm based in. As far as I'm aware, he never tried to build a Yeshiva over there, although he obviously could have. He never tried to set up to be a Magad Shir and Lumdus and all that kind of stuff, although he could have. Uh, he certainly had the head for it, obviously. Uh, that's not what the, the type he was. He was the type that loved. Not the lum that's all there, but the b'sak halacha. What does the Gemara say? What do the Rishonim say? What's the final din? Uh, what do the Achronim say on the final din? Uh, sometimes you machriot to in final din. For example, the Ur-Matum says this, and the Ksos says this, how do you paskin, uh, and Lamaisa, and so on and so forth. And therefore, for the last 40 years of his life, he was public, putting out uh, all the time pamphlets of what you and I call the Rech Um because because since he lived under the Russian government, so first of all, is trouble finding money to pay for the publication, 
And number, that's what he says. And number two, everything had to go through censorship. I told you before, he was very familiar with the Russian language and the Russian government, the Russian situation, and he knew how you have to dance in order to survive under the czarist regime. Uh, he was successful as a rope partly because he was very careful never to do anything to upset the authorities, and as a result, they gave him room to do his thing. Uh, and I mentioned this to you because you'll find in the writings of HaShulchan, in a lot of places, as I recall, he's always writing, in pra- number one, in praise of the Russian government, and number two, even with halachic consequences, and I don't know if it was a lie. You can never tell. So, for example, he says, you know, we had laws of uh, Messira and things like that, but it doesn't apply nowadays because the governments are honest and uh, they have law and order. The average person sitting in America today says, oh, he must have said that uh, because he's afraid of the czar. Which is possible because everything had to go to the censorship. It's also possible that if you lived in Tsarist Russia, you saw the pluses in addition to the minuses. The minuses was the severe anti-Semitism. The pluses are that the government upheld law and order uh, until the last czar when they didn't. So, uh, you know, uh, law and order is very important. And, um, you know, his experiences were not negative in the, in the law and order uh, area. I mention this because the Archashul is kind of famous, but nobody ever knows whether they're lying or not. You know, lately in America, in the last 10, 20 years, a lot of the worms came out of the ground, you know, with, in terms of sexual abuse, uh, the, the rabbis and the students and this and that and the other. You know, it's, we live in such a period, as, as you know. And then the question always came, can you tell the police? Can you call the police? Uh, is it Messira or not? And therefore, all kind of halachic articles have been written in the last 20 years on uh, most of their uh, questions. And, you know, the firm world's going back and forth on this. They're not comfortable with it, but the whole subject is an uncomfortable subject. Nevertheless, it's a reality of life. You can't uh, pretend it doesn't exist. There are those who would like to pretend it doesn't exist, but then they're responsible for the victims. Dimas ha'ashukim, you know. So um, whenever you have a question about whether you should call the cops or not, um, you know, on a molester or something like this, the first thing you bring up is Archa Shulchan. He says you should, but then they say as well, the Archa Shulchan doesn't count because he was writing it for Tsarist Russia. So it does not what he really meant. And then the other side, no, 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 that's what he meant. And you go back and forth with all this sort of thing. Um, don't be surprised when you see those kind of things in the Nitzif. And I kind of rem- remember uh, there are parts in the Kosher Mishpah that are missing that seem to me the political, uh, maybe, maybe it was Dina Machusadina or something like that, in which this is obviously, I think it's a subject he just doesn't want to touch. That's my memory. Uh, I'm not going to put the the, the Choshe Mishman now. But, uh, you know, the book is written in a place, in a time. And uh, the time is Tsarist Russia, where you be very careful what you write about. Having said that, he published first the Choshe Mishpat, and then you could tell he's a real Rav. And the reason I say it is because the, the Mishnah Burr concentrated entirely on Archaim, as you and I know. Um, and that was his great competitor, although he didn't know it. Uh, but the whole, the Mishnah over 20 years or something like that, did the, uh, the Orachayim. By contrast, the, listen to the order of how the Orach put out his book. First came the Chosh Mishpat, then came the Yeridea, then came the Ebenezer, and then came the Orachayim. So what does that tell you? He's a Rav Rav, a Dayan Dayan. He's writing, you know, the kind of things that you first encounter in a Beisden. The Orachayim is left for last. I don't say it's the least important, but in terms of specialty knowledge, uh, you know, first comes the Chosha Mishpat, then the Yordei and Ebenezer. I can tell you that um, I've always found it, I've always been a fan of the Rosh Hashanah, but I don't devote enough time to it as, 
as necessary uh, because it takes a lot of time to go through it. Uh, to do it right, in my opinion, and in opinion of others, I saw Rabbi Chaikin once, I just mentioned this to somebody in London, said the way, the way he used to teach it to his students was, first you do the, this is what his style, first you do the Rambam, then you do the tour and the Beis Yosef, then you do the Shulchan Aruch and the two people on the side, or let's say, let's say for example, the Shulchan Aruch and the Ber or something like that, and then you do the Archa Shulchan. Now, once you've gone through the preceding stuff, then the Archa Shulchan is unbelievable, uh, wonderful. Uh, that's one way of doing it. And uh, another way of doing it, which is what I, I, but that takes a lot of time, what I just said. So if I uh, was a rich man and I didn't have to work for a living and uh, do other things, and I had my time to set up a yeshiva the way I would like to do it, that would be the way I think I would do it. Um, however, and I have a couple other ideas, but meanwhile, like I say, no new speculating about that. On the other hand, another way that me, that I've always found uh, helpful myself, and nobody taught me this, I just uh, came upon it organically, was if you have a particular subject, particularly in Choshen Mishpat, and, but also in your day, anywhere, but, but I felt particularly in you know, Baba Kamba, but see, that sort of thing. I remember I used to do this when I worked for art school, and I did some of those in Masechah. So, uh, if you, you know, it, it, he's great. What can I tell you? The Archashol is great. Because these areas that you're not so clear in, unless you bring in, unless you bring in outside, uh, you know, uh, a lot of, um, of um, preliminary homework, um, he lays it all out for you. So you don't have to do all the extra homework. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. So you do any kind of business, you know, with uh, Migu or uh, Rove or, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Adis or um, Stars, uh, you know, all kind of things like that. You know, Grom or Garmi, whatever. You can do it one way or you can just look in the Archa Shulchan, meaning if you find a place where Shulchan talks about it, he will begin a programmatic essay and he will take you very logically, like the Rambam, from the beginning of the subject all the way through down to the Achronim. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, down to the Xos and, and, and so forth. And uh, that is one way of doing it. So I've always considered, this is just me, I've always considered like the Dorcha Shulchan a fantastic cheater book in that regard. Um, and he's so logical and very organized. He always starts with the Rambam. If you look at the very beginning of the Orachayim, uh, which is the last, I mean, he tells you his plan. And he, you know, he, and, he, and he lays out, and he has very interesting, like, a history of the Torah of Peg, you know, in his style of telling it over, and then he tells you how he uh, proceeds, which is true, he'll tell you the Rambam, and then the other Mepharshim one, and, and so forth. Uh, but in any area, so, I'm just thinking now, we live at the at this week that I'm speaking about today, as we all know, is the coronavirus, so the big word is Zoom. Uh, every rabbi, every rav, is going to have to go and, uh, you know, hold uh, sessions with the Balabatim, and with students, through the Zoom. Because you can't go in and, and get close to people because of the virus. We're all being quarantined to one degree or another. So everything's going online. And uh, either the podcast or the Zoom. Uh, with the Zoom, is I have to learn how the technology is. Uh, and it looks... I'm, I'm speaking to you on March 18th of 2020. So I don't know what it's going to look like in a few days or a week or two. But it looks at this moment like the government's going to get more and more stark in this quarantine business, in which case people have be grounded. I don't know what's going to happen to the economy, but it looks like everybody's going to be grounded. I mean, they're stuck in the house. In which case, because I was thinking about the Archa Shulchan today, I'm thinking maybe with the people in my shoulder, my students or whatever, uh, to do uh, some online, you know, with the Zoom, 
Maybe we'll do um, some parts of the Arach HaShulchan on Pesachim, because that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Pesach is upon us. Hilchus Pesach is a whole department by itself, right? Between the Heksha Kalim and the Chametz and the Tarubas Chametz and, uh, you know, all kind of other things like that. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated set of halachas. Uh, they're interesting, but complicated halachas. Say if you're a Bucky in Pesachim and the Rishonim and Achronim, fine. But the another way of doing it is you go through the Aruch HaShulchan, uh, at least in selected parts. That's, that's just something that's going through my mind today. And uh, if we do maybe Tuf Mem Beis or Tuf Mem Zion, something like that, it'll be very, very interesting because I would say he is the king. This is my opinion. This is the king of non-superficial Pashtas. And that's not easy, right? To be the king of Pshat, Pashtas, but not in a superficial way, is, is, a, is a masterpiece, you know, to be able to do that. Now, everybody knows that the uh, bad luck of the Archa Shulchan was he ran up against the Mishnah which means that two people living in two different places, not far away from each other, came with the same general idea at the same time. And this is like in Jewish history, it happened to the Ramah with the, with the Machaber, it happened to the Levush with a lot of other people. And I spoke about the other day about the, the Shach and the Taz coming out at the same time. And there, and I spoke also a couple weeks ago about the, who was it, the Chabas coming out same time as the Mokin Abram. You know, you have these things in history in which, you know, two people think at the same time and they both get published at the same time and the question becomes like this, which one gets more popular? <clears throat> um, I think everybody knows that the, the Mishnah Barah uh, got more accepted in uh, my lifetime, certainly. Uh, and therefore, the Arabs person says, like, let me see what the Mishnah Barah says. There's a whole bunch of reasons for that. They say the Bukhan Wasserman and the students of the Mishnah became the Russian sheep the next generation. They're the ones that put over the Chazanish was in favor of the Mishnah Uh, You know, all kind of reasons like that. Me'idah Gisa, it's all known. There are Moshe Feinstein, all the people used to say that the Rosh Hashanah is better because he was a Rav. Uh, one famous uh, difference between the Mishnah uh, you know, the Chavetz Chaim didn't practice as a, he could be, but he didn't practice as a community Rav, as opposed to the Rosh Hashanah, who all of his life was a bathing guy, you know. Every day he dealt with Shilas. This, I mean, day in and day out. You imagine him sitting there with two Dayanim, and here's this case, and then the next case, next case, and in between the cases, he's writing up the Archa Shulchan. That's what he did for decades. Decades. The Archaim Ebenezer Shulchan is a different type of person. Uh, my good friend Bernie Leaptag, I think he's still in America, he used to say years ago, I, I used to laugh at it, he says, you know, the Archa Shulchan is the friend of the common man. The friend of the common man. And yeah, I thought it was just a shtick. But I have to tell you, being in the Rabbana's business now for so and so many years, it's kind of true. A lot of times we need a kula. I'm talking about halachic kula. Uh, the will be there when the Mishnah will not be there. Now, that doesn't mean that the Rosh is always mekel and uh, the other one's machr. It's not always true. The other, there are times, there are more than a few times, that I found that the Rosh is the one who's machmir. I just had in my shul the other day, uh, I don't mind mentioning Lushan Tov as, as opposed to Lushan Hara, um, a newly engaged couple, the David Kramer's daughter, Aisha just came with the chassan. His name is Fader, Avi Fader, I think it is. Uh, Mazel Tov to them. And he introduced himself to me. He said, he listened to the podcast too. And I mentioned I was going to do the Rechashokhan, and he said, and he said, why are you guys? He said, was it Rabbi Sablovsky or somebody like that? Said, uh, you know, the Rechashokhan has, right off the top of his head, he said, you know, there's one Chumrah the Rechashokhan, which is, uh, maybe you don't want to hear this, Derech HaShulchan says you have to keep six hours milking and fleshing, uh, you know, milking after fleshing, six hours after you bench, not after you eat, um, which he says his family does. 
So uh, there's an example of a chumrah, and there are many others. On the other hand, I've also found a lot of times that the uh, Orchayim, uh, I'm sorry, the Orchashol is Mekel. And, uh, you know, the reason, it, it, let's put it this way, in his lifetime, he had a reputation for being a super big Mekel. That's what they write even in the Haredi's form. Uh, I remember uh, they said something like this, how do, you, how do you deal with people who come to ask you questions about fasting? Because, you know, people say, I'm sick, I'm weak, and all the rest of it. And he said something like, uh, if it's a tinus other than, how should I put it? For the four tinesim, you know, Shavasa Batam is a, a, a tinus Esther, uh, Sarbatavis, and uh, what else? Tum Gedalia. So uh, if they just, if I see him walking down the street towards my house, I tell him, you can eat. If it's Tishabov, I wait to. I wait till they come into the house, and then I tell them they can eat. If it's Yom Kippur, we have to look it up. <laughs> no, that's different, because Yom Kippur is derisive, obviously. Uh, but, you know, that's the reputation of a person who's a Rav, who's seen a lot of cases around. And um, there are many stories. Uh, maybe they're folktales or not, but it, it, it bespeaks an idea of him going crazy to find a heter for somebody when they needed it. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I saw in the Ozo Hunters thing, I think they brought that over there, I think that, um, which is the antithesis of the Moskillic uh, uh, novel, that was, the story goes like this. A lady came to him on the Seder, and she said, I found something in the soup or whatever, and could make the whole house a chumet stick, and what do I do? And it looked like it was a bummer, you know? It looked like it was a Pesach. On the other hand, he knew that it's going to wreck a whole family's Pesach. You know, get what I'm saying? And, uh, and the story is, you know, he said, just give me a minute. But it didn't take him any. He went to you know to the nearby shul or whatever, and he spent like an hour there holding up his own seder, and they kept coming new, new, new. And he said, "Wait, wait, wait," until he found the hetter for her. So he wouldn't give her hetter just like that. But he looked up and down, in and out, until he you know looked through the swarm until he found the hetter for her. If you want, if this story is true, I'm just going to give a guess. It's just a total guess. Uh, he would do this on purpose because perhaps one of the most famous anti from very well-known poems, Moskillic of the 19th century, exactly in his time was Yalag, Yudalib Gordon, who was the leading Moskillic poet. He was a poetic genius, but uh, anti-from like you never heard of. Unbelievable. And um, and he's a genius at writing poems, which really stuck the from uh, uh, world, and they are brilliant poems. They're just like poison, you know. And one of them is called, uh, I think it's called Asaka the Rispuk, I believe, and it was about a lady, exactly that case, that she, there was something wrong with the, with, with the uh, you know, it's like a piece of hummus they found in, in the soup at the Seder or something like that. Her husband was a balagol, a grubba young, and she went to the rub, and the rub said, the whole thing's trafe, and the husband uh, beat the heck out of her or something like that. It was like a tragic end, you know, divorced her, and she was black and blue. And the point of Yalag is, this is what the Torah gives you. And so, um, Libby Overly, I could be totally wrong, he must have heard about this and said, we're going to find a heter over here. But, in the, but he wouldn't do it just like that. You understand? He had to find a real hetter. So um, this spirit, I think, infuses, uh, or at least people get the impression, infuses, infuses the Yerach HaShochan. But either way, as I said before, uh, if, if I whetted your appetite, then it's very good, because the Yerach is a real classic. It used to be printed with a lot of pieces missing, uh, this section and that section, and uh, it was always a problem. And uh, like I say, what kills it is the fact that it's not... For the average person, it's not along the, the, the paragraphs of the Shulchan Aruch, so you don't know where he is. The Ozo Hutter put out a much better edition, in which a lot of missing pieces were in, not all, and uh, it makes life a lot easier. 
And, uh, you know, they organize it in, with such graphics, they can have a much easier time telling, you know, which part it, it pertains to. Although he does not always follow straight the, 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 the thing of the Shulchan Aruch. He does his own thematic, logical way. But if you have the patience, it requires a certain amount of patience. If you have the patience uh, to, to find what you're looking for, in my opinion, uh, you, can, you, 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 you can do a lot more, you can do very well by making a policy that whenever you want to know an area of halacha, whether it's Hilkos Shabbos or anything else, to take the trouble to look through the, the, the Archa Shulchan. Uh, the Mishnah Burr's written a different way and has his own virtues, and you know that's, there's no question about that. And also an excellent writer. Mishnah Burr is also an excellent writer, that's a fact. But the Archa Shulchan writes in a, in, a, in a different style, and you give her a different attitude. And what's fascinating is to see two great minds living at the same time near each other, and two great people, approaching the same subject in a different way, and it, 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 I think it gives you an aesthetic, an aesthetic intellectual pleasure to see how two great minds living in each other can view the same subject in halacha and come up with different conclusions. Uh, you, you would have to make a seder, I guess, and be conveying that, or make that part of your uh, Ian seder or something like that, but you could do a lot worse. I know I've gone way over time, but since... It's a, a famine going out there. I mean, and a coronavirus. I didn't think it mattered that much, but I do have to shut this down now. And so, all I can tell you is, especially in areas, you know, if you're if you're um, the regular guy learning, let's say a dafiyomi or, or or anything like that, uh, and you come across a subject that happens to catch your eye, you say, "Gee, you know, I'd like to know more about Adis. I'd like to know more about Kim Stars. If it's Ebenezer, you know, I'd like to know more about, uh, I don't know, Get Moose or whatever it is. Uh, you know, something like that. Which This comes up as you learn, right? Or what's Mukta? That's a great one. I always like the one he has, uh, this whole brilliant thing about Mukta. Beginning of Hokus Yontem is really brilliant. How he organized it all together. You have to accept his, his answers to contradictions. You know, not everybody uh, likes his answers, but it's a very good start. And it's a very solid, very glut. Uh, then you can do a lot worse than making a Seder in the Archa Shulchan. I, I know it sounds funny to say it, but I said it anyway. And uh, with that, I'll close it down. I hope that this uh, current crisis we will all weather together. And, uh, you know, in the, when we visit this subject next year, um, you know, we'll be in, a, in an all-in-a-healthy climate. Good evening.